You want to talk about stress, though? Look no further than Surrey Memorial Hospital. It's reached a boiling point with OBGYNs adding their voices to ER doctors saying resource issues there are threatening, even costing lives. 36 physicians in obstetrics and gynecology joined the ER doctors in speaking out about this crisis situation at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Uh, Reports you, you may or may not have heard on the Mike Smith Show Uh, countless close calls and the tragic death of a newborn. Here is uh, BC Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe talking about that newborn death and what must come next. Every child of a death in this province has to be reported to my office. So that death uh, will have been reported to my office and we will be investigating. And we certainly will uh, speak to the parents, we will speak to the attending physician, we will gather the medical records, um, and we will try to establish the cause of death. It is oftentimes more complicated um, than a clip uh, on, the, on the radio can, can yes. provide in terms of context, but absolutely we will be investigating that death, and that, was, that is within our jurisdiction to investigate. So what must come next? Critically inadequate resources, compromising patient safety. Let's bring in Richard Zussman, our global news reporter based at the legislature. And Richard, I know you've been deep into this story. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure, Jody. Thanks for having me. So who is to be held to account here? Or is it time to perhaps review the executives of Fraser Health? So I just spoke to Dr. Victoria Lee. I actually hung up on her to talk to you. And I asked her exactly that question. Who is responsible here? One of the lines in that letter you mentioned is this. We emphatically urge our community not to tolerate this degree of neglect from individuals who have the capacity to drive change at the regional and provincial levels. And what Victoria Lee said to me, and she is one of those people they are referring to, the head of Fraser Health. She says this is about global pressures they are feeling and together they need to solve this. I'm not sure that is enough to satisfy the concerns that we are hearing from OBGYNs, from emergency room doctors, from those on the front lines. Health Minister Adrian Dix points out that there are negotiations going on right now around resources uh, for doctors and uh, conversations for OBGYNs. And at times, these crises are used as negotiating tools. But I have never seen a situation, Jody, like this, where we have seen multiple departments come forward uh, in support of each other, speaking to conditions they believe uh, impact severely patient care. So the answer, who is responsible here? Ultimately, the way the system is built, it comes down to the head of Fraser Health, Dr. Victoria Lee, and Health Minister Adrian Dix. I know BC United continues to call for Minister Dix to step down as the Minister of Health. That is not going to happen. He has guided us through a pandemic. He continues to efficiently react to the situations the province is being dealt with. But there is still clear criticism here of the work that's being done at a provincial level and the responsiveness from Fraser Health to listen to concerns raised. Some of those exist, like the case that you mentioned, child dying in the hospital, We know the Fraser Health is reviewing um, a number of cases where people have died to see whether the staffing shortage uh, and the crunch on human resources has contributed to that. That investigation will take time. I don't even know if we'll ever publicly see the results of that. 
which I think is concerning as well, because clearly there's a public need and concern here. But we will see over time, um, in essence, how uh, these leaders can be held accountable for what's happening. Pressure in hospitals is not new, Jody. We know that. No. COVID no. Uh, created that. Uh, yeah. It created pressure like we've never seen but before that. We know that there's hour-long waits at, at emergency rooms. This has been a long-standing issue. But there seems to be now a growing sense of, yes, there's an issue, but the but leadership is not communicating to us in a way that we feel confident that those solutions are going to come. Richard, can you put into context just how unusual it is for this number of physicians, ER physicians, obstetrics, gynecologists, to step forward publicly like this? Yeah, we, we've seen these campaigns at times largely driven through their union or through concerted campaigns. But to have... Uh, this sort of magnitude and the number of people who've signed on, that's rare. You know, we saw Global News reported last week on the situation where 96% of ER doctors were charting at the end of April that the reason why uh, they were having challenges was because of human resource issues. 96% is staggering. That's, I, we believe it was 48 out of 50 doctors. That wow. sort of unanimity in the support of these concerns is what is rare. And, and again, these at times can be used as negotiation tactics, uh, but they are speaking in a, they are rowing in the same direction here. Uh, OBGYNs in the hospital, emergency room doctors in the hospital saying, we need clarity from Fraser Health. We need resources. The new hospital uh, in Cloverdale is not the only solution. There needs to be, um, commitment to additional staffing, additional resources to fix the problems we're experiencing. Surrey is, the, the, the province in some ways has its hands tied, Jody. We know the population is growing. We know that yeah. visits to hospitals are going up. We know we have an aging population. Health Minister Adrian Dix told me earlier that even those visits to hospital are outgrowing population, uh, largely due to the fact that people are getting older. We are, we are seeing pressure like we've never seen. At the same time, we are completing more surgeries in BC than ever before. But still, when people go to hospital, they need to know they are going to get the care that they need at a standard that they expect. And right now, doctors inside the hospital are saying, that's not the case. We can't deliver the care at the level that you expect based on what we are facing in front of us. Right, because this somewhat started, as you mentioned, this is a global issue. It's not a, a exclusive to Surrey, but at Surrey Memorial Hospital, where ER physicians were putting up a sign of their own making in the ER room to tell people that if you have a more minor issue, uh, so many people don't yeah. have GPs anymore, they're going to the ER with minor issues that would otherwise be managed at a clinic or at, at, with a general practitioner. But Fraser Health said you have to take that sign down. It's like, how to communicate with people to tell them that you might be waiting 48, 72 hours to see a physician. Mind you, if you have a heart attack, you're rolling through the doors because they're right. th the system is trying to do everything they can to save lives. And it's important for those listening who have loved ones who may need hospital care or they may need hospital care themselves. It is an emergency. Go to the hospital. Surrey yes. Memorial will have the resources there to help you. The challenge is the one that you spoke to, that because we have such a strain on our system, that um, the moment that walk-in clinics open their doors, their wait list for the entire day is full. Family mm -hmm. doctors, if you can get one, fill up 
very quickly. It takes weeks in some cases to get appointments. There is 900,000 British Columbians without a family doctor. All of that contributes to the fact. I, I was in the hospital uh, with our little guy um, in the fall, and there were groups around us, three of them. And it was a Sunday. He got hurt. Uh, we went to hospital because he uh, broke his collarbone. Three groups around us were all there because they didn't have a family doctor and they needed to get a prescription or they needed to talk to a doctor. And this was easier. Waiting in emergency was easier than going to a walk-in clinic or going to a primary urgent care center or finding a virtual doctor. And that bogs yeah. up the system. And, and the challenge the province has is the doors are open to everyone in emergency, but there needs to be better communication, as you mentioned, you know, is it a sign on the wall? Is it Health Minister Adrian Dick speaking through Global News? How do we do it? They can figure that out themselves. But ultimately, there needs to be better communication about the way the resources are used. Because the bottom line is this. If you need care in BC, you have an opportunity to get it. The problem is there's a lot of people who need care all at the same time. And that's creating this unprecedented pressure that's leading to doctors uh, and uh, OBGYNs and nurses not being able to do the job that they are trained to do, to provide the level of service that we expect. And we will ultimately see many healthcare workers and physicians exit if they're put in a position constantly yeah. to have critically inadequate resources, right? And and compromising patient safety, that must be incredibly difficult. It's like it's like being a mash unit. You're you know, you're doing only what you can as opposed to oh. having the ability to do what's expected. How it's been described to me, Jody, is they feel they are breaking their oath. The oath that they made oh, to serve wow in hospital that when they are put in this situation and this is not a new challenge and this is not a surrey only challenge no. we hear this from doctors no. and nurses across the province that they feel they are not being able to fulfill their oath that they made to provide the service that is expected of british columbians and and we know this has been the case but that it, it gets it gets scary for those on the front line scary for patients and and we know you know the minister is making a lot of changes he is he is attempting to ref to change a system and update a system uh, that uh, had not had a lot of fixes over a long period of time. But it, right. the fixes are not coming fast enough for those on the front lines who are just saying, enough is enough. We can't provide the, the care that, that people need. Continuing our chat with Richard Zussman, Global News reporter based at the legislature. And Richard, uh, changes at the top at Atira. Yeah, so uh, we knew the changes had to come, Jody, because Janice Abbott stepped down after significant pressure uh, from the provincial government. This comes after the findings of conflict of interest, uh, that in a forensic audit found there was uh, significant issues between the relationship of former BC Housing CEO Shane Ramsey and now former head of Atira Janice Abbott. The couple are married. Uh, if you listen to CKNW at all, you've heard this story a number of times, but now we have a response from Atira. This is the first time we have heard for the non-for-profit uh, since these allegations came forward and what we heard was that they need to repair this relationship from, with the province and that was pretty obvious and Catherine Room has been announced as the new interim CEO of Atira. Uh, she comes uh, to Atira uh, with significant um, experience. She's the founder and CEO of Pulse Technology. She was the presidency of Technical Safety BC. She's been on a number of boards. Uh, she is largely going to be um, someone who handles Atira through 
uh, a challenging time until they find a full-time CEO that has very specific experience around delivery of homes, especially uh, for women uh, and children uh, and those that are vulnerable. Atira is the largest provider of homes for BC housing. It is an important partner for the province. And the province's essence told Atira, if you don't change your leadership, if you don't abide by the standards set out, then you will no longer receive new funding for projects. And this is a significant step to Atira uh, accommodating what the province has asked for through its findings. Uh, there are a lot of issues at Atira. We found out yesterday they're now unionized, yes. uh, clearly staff were not happy with the way things were running there. They felt they needed to unionize in order to deal with that. Uh, we have heard other concerns around the way Atira deals with their uh, facilities. The province is in the midst of doing physical inspections, Jody, of every single facility that Atira operates in Metro Vancouver. Uh, we will see what comes of that, but the new leadership is a step in the right direction in repairing that broken relationship with the province. We'll continue to cover that. Richard, I've only got 90 seconds left, but I saw a tweet from you last night that said that the voting system that Alberta was using yesterday that saw us watching one vote at a time for the first hour plus of the coverage uh, is a system that we'll be using here in B.C. in our next election. Yeah, so I think it's a little bit different. Uh, we should be somewhat concerned, but... Uh, I don't think in Alberta they feed those ballots through the system through the day. Uh, that is what we do in BC. We've seen it run through some by-elections. It has gone incredibly well, Jody. Sometimes those computers can back up, but I would be surprised if with this much lead time, we have the same problems. Uh, those that operate this technology want it to succeed. Uh, at stake is our democracy, <laughs> trusting that the yeah. votes are being counted. Yeah. So seeing yeah. what we saw last night in Alberta, their elections BC will be working with the providers to ensure that we can deliver the technology that, that provides votes in a much more expedient way. We don't end up with these situations like we saw in Alberta last night, where for hour, two hours, it was one, one, one in some of the riding. So uh, I think something. it's the problem's going to be solved. We have by-elections coming here at the end of June. We'll use that technology then. I, I'm optimistic the, the wrinkles will, will be ironed out. Nice. Thank you for the context on that. Always a great follow on social media is Richard Zussman. Always great to have you here when I'm filling in. Thanks for doing this, Richard. My pleasure as always. Thanks for having me, Jody. Have a good show. Time to talk about housing and the affordability crisis and the lack of available places and spaces that actual people can afford to be close to where they work. You want to live where you work. You want to enjoy your community. So many people priced out of living in the city of Vancouver in particular. What about mixed use spaces? Would you want to live above a library, a fire hall, a school? This is something being floated, uh, not a unique idea. Certainly it's happened in other jurisdictions, but ABC Vancouver City Councillor Brian Montague uh, has some ideas around this and he joins me on the line now. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it, Brian. Welcome. Thanks, Jody. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me today. So let's talk it through. What's on the table here? What's the idea? Well, uh, like you said, it's not a new idea. Um, it, the City of Vancouver does have some examples of uh, integrating uh, housing with other types of uh, infrastructure. Uh, 54th and Kerr is an example of that. There's a fire station with housing above it. Uh, there's currently uh, a development going on in Coal Harbor with uh, with um, 
community center with housing. Uh, there's a elementary school, park, and housing all integrated together down uh, near Abbott and Expo Boulevard. So it, it does, it is happening in the city of Vancouver, um, but it's just a you know it's one of those things where we need to continue to get creative with how we increase supply uh, of housing in the city. So what does that? look like is it complicated is it a pile of red tape or is this fairly turnkey because when you think about it would there be a a a massive savings associated with mixed use of this nature i think it it depends on on what you're looking at um but you know it only makes sense as as when it comes to civic infrastructure as we will replace or repair or upgrade uh things like fire halls and community centers in in the city of vancouver that we we look at the ability to add housing to it um uh you know there's people talk about empty space above uh above commercial properties um you know this is a way that we can we can look at that as well to just make better use of uh, of what we have in the city. Um, we only have so much space. Vancouver is not a, a geographically a very big city. We're surrounded by mountains and water that prevent us from from uh, expanding outwards, uh, from urban sprawl. So uh, we have to look at things like transit-oriented density and, and again, just being creative in how we, uh, how we can add uh, or potentially add uh, uh, more housing in the city. More spaces for people more, to live, yeah. More spaces, yeah. We yeah. just... Again, supply is, I think that's one thing that, that everyone can agree on is that uh, we need more supply. Yeah, indeed. Whether it be, uh, you know, we're seeing the towers for sure in the downtown yeah. core. Uh, we're going to see more of that density along uh, Broadway with the Broadway plan. A uh, lot of people really stamping their feet about perhaps adding some more density to the, the, the more sprawling single family homes in some neighborhoods in the city of Vancouver. But perhaps it is that zoning piece of the puzzle that might uh, come into play here. Cause there wasn't there a, a vote this morning uh, around expediting permitting and such sorry i saw something roll by while yeah. i was preparing for to start the show can you can you update us on that yeah this morning uh before council uh staff had uh, a prioritization uh framework uh for rezoning applications uh before city council um council did make some amendments to that report um and basically it was uh, giving staff some guidelines on, on what needs to be prioritized over the next, uh, it's a short term because we, um, in order to get rid of some of the backlog that we have, uh, with, mm-hmm. with, um, with some of our projects that are before staff. And basically what we looked at is, is a prioritization of not a delivery of specific, uh, prescriptive types of housing, but, uh, housing across the entire housing continuum. So basically all types uh, of housing we want to to prioritize but it's based on a, a net new housing units so um, looking at things like if it's an empty lot that would be prioritized over tearing down an existing homes and building a, a new structure for example right let's let's speed our way towards the finish line of more housing we're with abc vancouver city councillor brian montague uh, talking specifically about um, trying to be creative in ways of of having more housing and not just the high-end housing that we see so much of in our beautiful city, which, you know, can't blame people for wanting to live here. Uh, I would say as a born and raised Vancouver, it's the most beautiful place in the world, but it is also unbelievably oppressively expensive. So if somebody said to me, if I was, you know, 
trying to make ends meet as a renter. And somebody said, well, you can rent this place above the fire hall for less because you will be living above a fire hall, which right. you might need to sleep with earplugs occasionally. Um, I'd be like, great, you know, sign me up because I want to live in the city. I want it to be walkable. I want to be right here as opposed to moving to a suburb to be able to afford you know, even a space to live. Cause that's kind of where we're at, Brian, we're at a place where people don't even have the option of living in this city. Well, that's just it. It's, it's, you know, Vancouver will always be expensive. Uh, I, I don't think um, we can get around that completely, um, but we want to no. be able to give people options. And, you know, we, we do hear a lot of, uh, you know, uh, individuals talk about size of units and, and where the, where, where homes are located. Um, I think, you know, everyone, Everyone is is different uh, in what they they either want to live in or or are capable of living or what suits their specific needs. Uh, we want to give everyone options, and if living above a community center or a fire hall or a public library uh, is something that they'd be interested in, well, let's give them that option. Yeah, and there's some people that are like, you can't live above a school. It's like, well, you don't have to live above a school. There's some people that yeah, might, might love not be that. Right, might not be people, right for you, but right. but there's somebody out there. I'm sure actually probably lots of people out there would be happy to live above a school. Uh, and and it yeah. seems a little unconventional maybe to to some individuals because it it's not overly common. Um, but we do ha- we have to get creative. We only have so much space in the city of Vancouver, and and we have to get creative with the space we have. One quick curveball before I send you, because uh, thank you for your time. I know you're super busy here. But when it comes to what I was speaking to with the single family homes and some of the areas that are these large sprawling properties, are we going to see a time where those um, start to be zoned in a way that if somebody who lived in one of those and wanted to take their single family dwelling and turn it into four units, um, you know, on that property, moving towards what seems to be more of a European model? Uh, that that gentle density piece. Are we moving towards that in Vancouver at all? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I think we have to we have to look. Uh, you know, everything basically sort of north of of about 16th Avenue is is much more dense than south of 16th. Um, we have a lot of yes. uh, infrastructure though south of 16th Avenue, like schools and rec centers and parks uh, that can handle uh, a greater density. Um, yeah. I think we can do greater density in those neighborhoods while still maintaining the character of those neighborhoods. And I, I think that's what we need to look at for sure. That's the piece that people are really worried about. I mean, there's some NIMBYs, of course, but there are some that are like, I don't want all of a sudden live in the shadow of a massive tower because we're trying to you know, ram that into the neighborhood, but might be okay if there was a little bit of, you know, even double, tripled, quadruple density in their community because having a thriving community is what Vancouver has always been about. And it's felt a little hollowed out. Uh, Brian Montague, as always, I appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jody. Not sure about you. Were you uh, locked on to the coverage? Global had the coverage of the Alberta election. Oh boy, this has been one of those situations where what is typically fairly straightforward, conservative election, kind of boring in years gone by. Alberta, anything but boring in this last incarnation uh, since Jason Kenney was out and Daniel Smith took over. And then she's been a lightning rod to say the least. But Daniel Smith, in fact, wins a majority government in Alberta. Here is her acceptance speech. Many folks uh, wrote us off, even just as recently as last month. But you know what happened? 
Despite it all, today Albertans chose to move our province forward by re-electing a strong, stable, united, conservative majority government. And, you know, Rachel Notley, the NDP leader, put up what she will tell you uh, was a very hard fight. And this is Ms. Notley conceding. Now is the time for us to do the work that has been asked of us. It is my honor to serve as your leader, and it is my privilege to continue to serve as leader of the official opposition. So there's democracy at work right there, right? People vote, choices made, Premier, Premier Daniel Smith, Rachel Notley concedes, Alberta is a United Conservative Party majority-led province. How that all came to be was anything but typical. I want to connect now with uh, Global Calgary's Adam McVicker. Adam, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It was wild to watch from afar. Uh, my family, my son, my my partner and I were, were glued to the television set, waiting, and then all of a sudden the numbers start coming in and we're like, holy, this seems like it's happening really fast. And then there's Dave Aiken going, oh, uh, actually, uh, that's just one vote. And uh, that is also one vote. And that is one vote. And all the percentages were coming in. And it was it was unlike anything we had seen before. Can you give us an idea of what it was like to cover the election yesterday? Well, I'll tell you, I was set up at uh, UCP headquarters here in Calgary. They rented out a building on Stampede Park, and that's where all the party faithful came to watch the results come in live. Um, Albertans waited a bit longer last night than maybe in years past to find out who their next government would be. Uh, Typically, you know, it takes about an hour, just under an hour, before we typically have a call. But just how those results started to come in... um, like you just mentioned with David, with David Aiken on, on TV, they're showing, you know, some writings had three votes in at one point. And, 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 and <laughs> the ticker is the ticker on the bottom of the screen for a lot of folks was showing, you know, even if it was two votes to one, the ticker would show that riding as UCP or NDP leading. But I know in UCP headquarters, anytime that ticker changed up for the UCP, the crowd went nuts, even if it was two votes to one. So it did take much longer last night for that count um, than in previous years. And so it made for an interesting evening, let's say. Now, Calgary was certainly very pivotal in all of this. In the lead up to this election, it was fairly established that that Edmonton would go predominantly NDP, but then rural Alberta would be staunchly conservative no matter who the leader might be, they would be voting conservative traditionally, died in the wool, if you will. And then Calgary would be what would be the game changer if by some, what many in years past would have considered a miracle, an NDP win, um, it would have to be a, an orange wave of sorts in Calgary. How did you see that unfold? Was, it, was that just something that we were seeing from afar, a narrative we were hearing from here, or was that what it felt like in Alberta? Well, we we knew this would be a close election, and and that's ultimately what what came out. And it was battleground Calgary the entire month here. I I, you know, we were very busy down here. There was announcements in Calgary almost daily. The leaders spent the most time here in Calgary. Um, and ultimately, if you take a look, you know, with the unofficial results from Elections Alberta, it was 
Calgary that did decide it. The difference being 2,611 votes around there across six ridings won this election in Calgary. So, you know, I'm sitting here right now in in my vehicle in a riding in Calgary that the NDP um, won by seven votes. Another one was 30 vote difference. So it was very, very close. We're, We're checking in with Elections Alberta to figure out just how this next process goes for recounts because it did get real close uh, in these areas. But, uh, you know, the the used to be held on to uh, enough of those ridings to come out with a victory. But, yes, just over 2,600 uh, votes across six ridings is what ultimately decided uh, this election. And all of those ridings were here in Calgary. Well, that's democracy at work, hey? Uh, Adam McVicker is a journalist uh, for Global uh, Calgary, joining us here on the line, giving us sort of the the flavor, if you will, of what this election was like. And and as mentioned, a very national story. There was a lot invested in this because there have been so many, how do we put this, characters involved. There have been some, some things um, said aloud that had to be retracted. There are some take back Alberta officials who are headed to the Alberta legislature. Um, what is the feeling associated with the, um, I don't know, is it, is it called a separatist movement? I'm not entirely sure how to describe what, what this would take out back Alberta is, but they're, they're, it's an organization, it's a third party advertiser that, um, you know, has claimed victory when, you know, Jason Kenney was ousted as leader. They've claimed victory when Danielle Smith became leader. And there are a few folks there. there um, it's a, it's a, a, a complicated group to describe because I, I, I quote uh, Calgary's former mayor who came out in support of the NDP uh, just the other day, uh, a very rare endorsement from uh, former Calgary mm-hmm. mayor Nahed Nenshi. He basically said, take back Alberta from who is the, is the big question. So, um, there are a few folks that are in in the the, the cabinet uh, or not in the cabinet, sorry, in the UCP caucus who are backed by Take Back Al- Alberta. Uh, there were folks at the UCP headquarters last night donning uh, blue Take Back Alberta shirts. Um, just how narrow this this margin is, though, forty nine thirty eight is how it stands right now for the UCP. It's the narrowest. Um, seat margin and, and nearest majority in Alberta's history uh, here in this election. So the big question is, who will have the power in, in the UCP to, to sway decisions and policy uh, on a political level based on just how narrow that margin is? Um, you know, the UCP is coming off in 2019, a 63-seat majority, of a pretty sizable majority. So now with this mm-hmm. slim majority, no one's really sure how that's going to play out when it comes to getting things done in the legislature. Let's talk a little bit about what Daniel Smith, Premier Daniel Smith, um, promised in the lead up to this election and what you expect while living in Alberta, what might change. Um, because there, there's been a lot of bluster. There's been a lot of uh, news trends and storylines to Danielle Smith's uh, campaign. What, what do you expect to happen first? Is, is health care the big one? This is the most complicated question that I, I, I face when I'm chatting with folks uh, all over here in, in Alberta, whether it's friends or people I encounter through, through uh, my reporting. 
this this election did have two issues. Or we did a polling through Ipsos that showed affordability and health care were the top two issues in this election. But there was no ballot box question. Uh, typically, mm. you know, health care, we thought would maybe be a big one, uh, considering, you know, there are some wait times. It's something the government was trying to address before the election by bringing in uh, consultants and and doing inquiries into what's going on in Alberta's health care system. Um, but there was no big ballot question. I know the NDP campaign really tried to shift it to trust and leadership. They were trying to make that the ballot box question and sow doubts with um, with uh, now Premier Danielle Smith. Um, so that's one of the more complicated situations here is, is what that is. Now, when it comes to the first thing uh, the this UCP government will do, they did announce that Bill 1 would be a a piece of legislation regarding increasing uh, personal income taxes and taxes for businesses. Uh, it would have to go down to a referendum. So we haven't seen any of that legislation yet, but they said that will be their first promise is to make it tougher for future governments to raise personal income taxes and business taxes. Interesting. Okay. So when it comes to the the man on the street, when you say you're talking to your friends, you're having people come to you, it's often the case when you work in, in journalism, that people are like, okay, what's the real story? What's the temperature and mood now in Calgary? Because that's where you are. Um, are people feeling like, okay, I'm glad this is done. Democracy is has played out. And Daniel Smith is premier. No one's really surprised. It was as close as, as pollsters said it was. Or are people concerned with this? So it's a it's a it's an interesting mixed bag here when it comes to how people are are, are feeling. There are folk. This this election became pretty divisive, and you can see that in the result. Mm-hmm. It, it's very very close. So there are folks definitely worried about that. How how is this, do we move forward after this one and kind of get back to normal uh, after you know quite a divisive campaign, but a lot of comments from different campaign, uh, different uh, candidates, uh, stuff was pulled up from uh, Premier Smith's past. So there was definitely, there's definitely concern in, on that front. There is yeah. some folks, I just spoke to a, a, a lady here who said they, they're happy UCP is in, but they're, they're not exactly thrilled with the, the leader. Um, and then there are other folks who, who, you know, really were hoping for an NDP win who they're, they're feeling a, a, a little concerned at this point they're they're worried about what this means what this future means uh for alberta and a lot of it is still yet to be seen because as i mentioned you know not not a big ballot box question and the issues didn't get talked about outside the debate it really at least from my perspective i felt like the issues didn't get didn't get brought up as much um in terms of you know actual platform pieces and things like that, it got pretty uh, divisive. So uh, there are folks very just like they have a lot of questions. What what's this going to mean moving forward here? What will it look like? Because the the politicking that happens in the lead up to an election is always full of flashpoints. And then we see uh, the get down to business piece of the puzzle. And that is what will happen next in Alberta. I hope the divisiveness isn't too hot. We're seeing a lot of that on social media from afar. Um, it, it, sort of that throwdown of, yeah, see, um, which is interesting. Um, maybe we're not quite used to that uh, north of the 49th. Um, it, it's sort of mirroring a little bit of U.S. politics and just how divisive it has become. I appreciate you giving us uh, your perspective from Calgary. Adam, thanks for doing this. 
No, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Time to talk about minimum wage because it goes up on Thursday. This is a big deal. Um, Do you remember how much you made in your first job? I'm going to date myself right now. I'm fine with it. I'm 55. But my first ever job, I made minimum wage. It was $3 an hour. Minimum wage as of Thursday will be $16.75 an hour. So as of June 1st, it automatically goes up. That's the rule, $16.75. The goal to meet basic needs um, for, for those in communities to be able to contribute a little something. A living wage, completely different story, especially in Metro Vancouver. The living wage in Metro Vancouver, $24.08 per hour. The math on figuring out what minimum wage should be is math I cannot imagine. The mental gymnastics that must go into this because you have to keep in mind the pressure it puts on business owners to have to pay the the increased sum associated with this. But then you want communities full of people who can afford to both eat and pay rent, (laughs) feed their children and heat their house. Um, Many of us have lived in that paycheck to paycheck situation and it can be daunting for sure. Very pleased to be able to welcome BC Minister of Labour Harry Baines to the program. Thank you for doing this. Hey, thank you for having me. Can you just talk us through um, the reaction to the increase that is coming on Thursday? Well, look, I think there are reactions from all different sides depending how Mm. they are impacted by this increase. Uh, Just as a background, uh, when we formed government in 2017, BC's minimum wage was one of the lowest. Uh, Why? Because uh, the government of the day decided to freeze minimum wage for 10 years uh, out of those 16 years. Now, um, the cost of living continued to to increase during those times, and the, the lowest paid workers in BC continued to fall behind and behind. And uh, so we brought in a fair wages commission. Uh, they were business representatives on it uh, and, uh, and the workers and uh, independent person on it. They came back and, and um, uh, they gave us a unanimous decision that uh, minimum wage should go up to $15.20 in stages. And they listened to the businesses. And what, one thing that came clearly out of their discussion with businesses and workers and everyone, that what the businesses would like to see is certainty so that they know what their cost is going to be going forward uh, ahead of time so that they can budget accordingly. And uh, so once we, we also said that once we reach $15 an hour, we will link it to the rate of inflation so that everyone would be uh, would, would, would know ahead of time uh, what their wages are going to be and the workers will not fall further behind because of inflation increases and the businesses will know and have some certainty and be prepared ahead of time what their cost is going to be. So that's what we are doing. We reached 1520 according to the Fair Wages Commission recommendation in 2021 and last year we raised it uh, by the rate of inflation of the previous year 2.8%. And this year, we're doing the same thing, uh, raising it with the uh, rate of inflation, which was 6.9% last year. So the minimum wage will go up June 1st this year uh, in a couple of days to $16.75 an hour. 
We're with BC Minister of Labor, Harry Baines, and obviously there are many people feeling the, the, the crush, really, of inflation right now, uh, whether it be at the grocery store, at the, at the gas pump, uh, whether it's the affordability crisis on housing. There are so many pieces of this. So $16.75 per hour will be the minimum wage in British Columbia as of Thursday. Where You said that uh, when a number of years back we were the lowest in Canada. Where does $16.75 put us when compared... Yeah. Uh, across the country? That would be highest of all provinces uh, when when that time comes. And uh, um, by the way, uh, it needs to be noted, uh, inflation rate, uh, the world inflation rate was continued to rise. And I think all other jurisdictions, uh, I looked at uh, when we were making this decision, uh, every other, almost every other province is um, following our lead. Either they are raising it by the rate of inflation or even higher in some cases. So I think uh, everywhere in in the, in, in the country, uh, the, the minimum wage is going up by the rate of inflation, which is 6.9%, and some cases a bit more than that, because they were way behind. Okay, Minister, when it comes to this, I mean, so many people would agree. I, I think it would be hard to not agree that elevating the minimum wage is really necessary uh, when it comes to a response to the inflation we're seeing. But on the other side of this coin are the businesses who are already struggling to be profitable. Uh, particularly, I will point to the restaurant industry um, and food services. Uh, we're going to speak with Ian Tostenson from the BCRFA uh, shortly as well. But essential workers, the retail workers, the grocery store workers, oftentimes uh, minimum wage workers, but also um, the business owners who are trying to make ends meet where margins are already razor thin. What might be there to support them in all of this? Well, first of all, I, I, I really do feel the challenges that the small businesses are facing, um, you know, especially coming out of COVID, dealing with all the challenges that they had. Um, you know, many of them had to shut down, restart, and a rate of inflation, the international rate of inflation is hurting them. The interest rate is hurting them. And of course, the minimum wage is also going to impact them. But one thing I do say that there are different kind of support during COVID uh, from the government to the businesses. And uh, but we cannot, um, you know, have our lowest paid workers uh, bear the brunt of these inflationary costs. And I think they also need to buy grocery. Uh, these are the businesses that we are talking about. They need to go to a restaurant if they have to go and get a meal and uh, pay rent. So I think um, these are the, the people at the lower end. They, um, they get impacted the most uh, compared to other workers at a higher income. And every penny in increase that they receive, um, they invest back into the small businesses in their own communities. So businesses do get uh, benefit by this, this high increase of, of minimum wage. But I do understand that the businesses are hurting and, uh, you know, there are different ways the government is out there trying to help them. Can you expand on that at all? Creative? Uh, how is the government expand, or trying to be creative here? Well, I think uh, if you look back, uh, since the, the COVID hit um, uh, us uh, unexpectedly, $525 million dollars have been provided in support, nearly 30,000 businesses in B.C. Um, right. Budget uh, 2023 also set aside $480 million for future-ready plan to help break down the barriers for post-secondary training so the employers can access the talent that they need because that's one of the, the biggest complaints I hear and our government here is, uh, uh, is uh, their inability to attract workers and retain workers. And you know what? 
as a result, they are having to pay more than minimum wage anyway. So yeah. I think that is another challenge that we have. Uh, although more people are moving to BC, it brings its own challenge. It, you know, it deal it helps us uh, deal with the labor shortage a bit, but at the same time, uh, the businesses I, I do understand that they are they are hurting. But uh, you know, we cannot ask our lowest paid workers to pay the brunt of these inflationary costs because they are the one who get impacted the most. We're with BC Minister of Labor, Harry Baines. And and Minister, you do have an extraordinarily difficult file. As you mentioned, the labor shortage coupled with the increase in minimum wage that that impact, impacts some in a negative way, that they'd be like, I don't have the workers. And then when I do find the workers, I can't afford to pay the number of workers that I get and trying to to pull them in. there, are, We could do an entire hour on just your file and only scratch right. the surface. But it's it's really at the root of this. If I'm hearing you to summarize this, is that in order to bring up the minimum wage, or your your goal in bringing up the minimum wage is to give more in the community so that people can then spend more on the businesses within the community and 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 have a robust existence as opposed to you know as I mentioned off the top, uh, not eating so that they can pay the rent. Correct. And I think the other uh, dynamic that we need to, uh, or demographics we need to look at is there are about 30,000 employees uh, who are impacted by the minimum wage or they're working at minimum wage. They work for uh, businesses that employ less than 20 people. But 49% uh, minimum wage earners are working for large organizations that employ 100 plus employees. So sometimes it is felt that uh, it's always the small businesses that employ uh, minimum wage workers. Yes, uh, many cases, but I think there are large businesses also employ minimum wage workers. So I think uh, when you look at the balance, uh, I certainly, uh, you know, share the concerns of the restaurants and, and, and for those small businesses. But there are large businesses who certainly, I believe, can afford to, to uh, uh, pay, uh, you know, a little higher than the minimum wage. Overall, about 150,000 workers will be uh, benefiting from this. And you know what? When they have a bit more money in their pocket, you know, they do spend it in their local businesses. These are the people they can't afford to go, you know, spend money outside of Canada. They're spending in their own communities just by the basic necessities. 16.75 an hour as of this Thursday. Uh, the Metro Vancouver living wage, just for reference sake, $24.08. So $16.75 is going to help people, but it's still an affordability crunch being felt by so many. Thank you, Minister Baines, for doing this. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Vance in for Jill, and uh, we're chatting with Ian Tostenson next, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, we were just talking with BC Minister of Labor Harry Baines about the minimum wage going up on Thursday. I want to know how that impacts uh, restaurateurs in BC. Hi, Jody. This Hi. is a tough one because I totally get where the minister is going in terms of making sure that we keep people ahead of things. The, the problem we have is when I think. Minimum wage is just put up across the board. We, we had some long conversations with the minister explaining to him that, um, you know, yeah, we probably have the majority of those, of those 130,000 workers making minimum wage in our industry, but most of them are servers and most of them are tipped employees. And so when you get down to the truth, a lot of servers are making anywhere, from, get this, 35 to 50 bucks an hour. And so, but when you, and they're, 
they are making minimum wage because they don't really care. They're working for their gratuity. When we go up 6.9%, which is an historical, and this is the other point we made with ministers, please don't go 6.9%. As you said, that was last year's rate of inflation. It's not, you know, I think we're closer to four now. What we suggested for the health of the industry, in spite of all the things that we've got going on, let's do 3%. Now, we were only talking about our sector because of that whole effect on tips. The mm-hmm. other parts of the economy, you know, totally. I mean, retail, they don't have that benefit of the extra income. And he's right. Most most businesses are not paying minimum wage in those circumstances. So I'm not so sure as a public policy tool, just raising the minimum wage and, and incurring for business, as you pointed out, to incur that much incremental cost is probably more destructive than it is helping the communities that we serve in. Is there some way to get creative with how this unfolds for the businesses that get hit hardest in this way? Is there something, you know, when when Minister Baines was saying the government's trying to be creative and trying to help, because this really does impact the smaller mom and pop shops that we're already seeing disappear thanks to this past three years of almost utter annihilation of the industry because of COVID, yeah. the, the go home, stay home, eat at home, drink at home. You're not allowed to come here. Um, <laughs> you know, and everybody trying to pivot. It's been a real, uh, you know, journey for everybody, but there are some yes. industries that have been hit especially hard. And I, I, you know, full disclosure, my significant other is a chef and, and I've watched him and his industry yep. deal. We're very fortunate. We are among those that are not impacted to the degree that so many are. And so wanting to do that balance, is there some way to get creative to find a balance for the smallest? It's this yeah. is not the big box shop that's going to suffer, right? Well, and they suffer as well too, but I mean, um, so the, the Restaurants Canada reported the bankruptcies in our sector up 106%. I hate complaining wow. about this stuff, but the fact is we were closed 115 days you know, over those two years, and that just created av- absolute havoc. And you're right, we haven't come out of that yet. So what we so we talked to Minister Bailey. So after, <laughs> this is the crazy thing about government. After the um, you know, wage came out, uh, Minister Bailey, who's in, in charge of you know small business and technology, called us and said, "Okay, so what what kind of things can we do to help offset?" So we said, "Okay, here, labor cost rebates, statu- statu- statutory holiday labor rebates, a dedicated um, uh, hospitality foreign worker program, accelerated uh, work safe rebates, um, municipal tax rebates, carbon tax rebates, SIBA loan extensions." And I mean, all that stuff is hitting us and all of its government. And I actually spoke with the premier and not, you know, and I don't do it very often, but I called him last week in the wake of the closure of the Donnelly group or the restructuring. And I yeah. said, we're in real trouble. And I said, I have a duty to bring this to your attention. You've always asked me to, and I am, but a lot of the things, Mr. Premier, are being brought on by the provincial government, in spite of the fact that they were really good to our industry during the pandemic, the, the one thing that they were great at was a sense of urgency and getting stuff done. But we're now, you know, there was five extra sick days put on the payroll. Um, there's another statutory holiday. There is the employer health tax that still has this $500,000 um, um, uh, point of which you start to pay the health care tax. And it goes on and on and, and it takes its toll. So when the minister says we're trying to do something, they've got to do something direct to industry and, And it frustrates me that we have to sort of put it up here and all of a sudden go over here to try to get something to equalize it. But we're in trouble. There's no question. And it's no fault of our own. 
Uh, I think Restaurants Canada also reported, Jody, that, you know, just over half of the restaurants in BC are making any profit at all. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you just so here, an example, a uh, 6.9% increase in labor in a restaurant on a million dollar restaurant with a 30% uh, labor cost adds $20,000 to the cost of business and they've done nothing. They're just going, okay, yeah. great. You know, we're not selling anymore. And so, yeah, so we got to work through this. Um, we would have, you know, we would have been happy with three and he's right. We did agree to, to tie it to inflation. That was an industry agreement we had, but we didn't foresee the world at 6.9% yeah. inflation. And not a, not a unique issue, right? This is something that is happening all over the world when it comes to the cost of goods, the cost of, of businesses, the taxes, the property taxes, the, the inflated uh, yeah. real estate, uh, all of it, all of it comes into play. We see places closing because all of a sudden the landlord says, we're quadrupling your lease now. Uh, there's all yeah. sorts of pressure on your industry. And Ian, you do often come to this radio party with solutions and and positivity. And today is a is a tough day for many in the industry. And I think you've reflected that in how you brought it to the table, the stats you bring and the knowledge okay. and your want to make it better. I appreciate you, my friend. Thanks, Jody. I really appreciate you highlighting the issue. Cody Manson for Jill Bennett. We want to go back to what was a big night in Alberta, but how Alberta lands here in BC, how it lands here in Metro Vancouver, how it lands on your kitchen table, right? The divisiveness, the 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 entrenched camps. I am a conservative, therefore you are wrong if you are not, or I am an NDP, and if you are not, you are wrong. There is a lot of that going on right now. We see a ton of it south of the border, but we're not immune to it here in Canada. So last night, democracy in full force. Not surprisingly, the United Conservative Party wins a majority, albeit a slim one, in Alberta. This is Premier Danielle Smith with her acceptance speech. Just a taste. Many folks uh, wrote us off, even just as recently as last month. But you know what happened? Despite it all, today Albertans chose to move our province forward by re-electing a strong, stable, united, conservative majority government. All right, and then NDP leader, her opponent, Rachel Notley, concedes. Now is the time for us to do the work that has been asked of us. It is my honor to serve as your leader, and it is my privilege to continue to serve as leader of the official opposition. So tomorrow on the show, we're going to have Jan Arden on. Jan, of course, an outspoken, she's just an, an absolute treasure in Canada. The the artist, the musician, the the actress, uh, the the comedy that she brings so active on social media and Jan had put out there that she was supporting the NDP in this election and and then this morning she was speaking about how things played out last night and how this is actually democracy and how proud she is to be a Canadian have a listen hello everybody Alberta in particular I absolutely love my province and I love Canada and I'm so grateful to be living in the greatest freaking place in the world and I'm really grateful that democracy is is working and it's pretty remarkable to see it in action 
And I know that millions and millions and millions of people all over the world don't get a chance to vote. They don't get a chance to be heard. They live in fear and being persecuted. Um, I've been facing a lot of vitriol this morning, you know, just because I voted for the NDP and people are telling me to move and all that stuff. And it's just childish. It's just silly. I'm, I'm happy democracy. I'm happy democracy works. But, you know, I don't know why people think that I'm not entitled to an opinion, too. Like, if you're, you know, everyone's entitled to vote for who they want to vote for. That's what this is all about. You know, we don't, we don't just have one party that rules everything. We, we, that, that, that's called a dictatorship. This is people making choices, and I'm grateful for that. But, you know, please, take it easy. You don't have to be a prick. And just be ridiculously immature. I know it's just a handful of people, but, you know, here we go. It's a great province. And with so much possibility, so many resources, and so much wonder, and nature, and... I've lived here all my life, and I'm entitled to express an opinion. And so what? It's not about losing. We all win when democracy works. When democracy works. And I've been teasing all day that I had a special guest joining me uh, at this time. Uh, Jan Arden's actually going to join me tomorrow at 1 o'clock. But today I wanted to bring in somebody who's covered elections in Alberta, has sat on the news desk for almost two decades in Edmonton, and sat in a control room right here on this station for a number of years for the first time back on the airwaves. I'm thrilled to welcome my co-host of Steel and Vance, Linda Steele. Welcome back. Oh my goodness. And do you realize that it is almost exactly two years since I walked out the door of the studio at CKNW to take care of my dad? Almost two years to the day. So Hello to everyone at CKNW. It's really awesome to be back. And what a weird, bizarre sort of full circle moment. You and I, I did a couple of shows together at CKNW, doing a show together now on Czech TV on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. And anyway, nice to catch up with you. I love having you on here because I was thinking about you while watching the election last <laughs> night, the coverage of this election. I'm like, I wonder what it would have been like to be Linda sitting in Edmonton covering this. Were you keenly watching the lead up? I, I mean, of course you are. You're a news hound. What, what did you see <laughs> unfold? Okay, well, first of all, I wasn't surprised because the major polls that came in in the last 48 hours said it was probably going to be a UCP majority, that the NDP did have a very narrow path to victory, but they would have to win, like, basically all of the swing ridings. And it was doable, but almost impossible. And it turned out that it was impossible. But I was thinking about what you were saying in terms of the divisiveness in in Alberta and just listening to Jan. And here's the thing. I mean, Alberta is only now catching up with the rest of the country. Uh, There has been a metamorphosis in Alberta because it was for decades since the beginning of time, full on conservative. And when I lived there, everybody was conservative. Not everybody. Edmonton always had pockets of NDP support. But generally speaking, the premiers were always conservative. The voters were always happy with what they got, generally speaking. And when I was a pub reporter, like totally wet behind the ears in 1986, it was a massive victory for the NDP led by Ray Martin. They won 16 seats which was gobsmacking. It was shocking to uh, Albertans. Holy crap. They have an opposition for the first time ever. 
And I was called into the news director's office because we were an independent TV station owned by a surgeon. It was a conservative. And I was told as the backup legislature reporter, you will not make a big deal of the fact that the NDP have won 16 seats. They still have a minority. The conservatives are still well in majority territory. So just tone it down. Uh, that was back in the day. Uh, and uh, frankly, the only time I was ever told how to frame a story. But you know what? It was like huge. And then uh, by 1993, they had no seats. The NDP went from 16 to zero. And so this is really just Alberta kind of growing up in a way and being like BC, where everybody is either liberal or NDP, maybe a little bit of conservative, but generally speaking, those two parties. So when you're looking at what's happening in your um, the province you were born and raised in, what yeah. do you think is happening, boots on the ground, people living in the major city centers versus the more rural areas? Because that was the messaging that I was hearing last night in the coverage on Global, uh, which was so interesting because of the drip, drip, drip of the, of the votes <laughs> coming in and being counted. But that it was like, you know, Edmonton, predominantly NDP, but the rural uh, votes were all conservative and there were so many seats in the rural that you had to like orange wave Calgary in order to for there to not be a conservative majority. What do you think it's like? Is it divisive there now? Has that evolved? Are people going to find that that ability to balance the democracy piece that we're, we're trying to find across the country? Well, here's the fun thing. I mean, in many ways, Alberta is very much like B.C. If you look at rural British Columbia, it's very much resource based and they tend to vote liberal because their jobs are at stake. And when you look at the big urban centers, they're maybe a little bit more uh, talking about climate change and talking about LGBTQ rights and what have you. And so they are looking at life from two different lenses. And so Albertans are not that much different from, from British Columbians. Rural Alberta, rural Alberta, specifically, is very much tied to the resource sector, their jobs, their economy. And to some degree, I mean, Edmonton is as well, Calgary is. Calgary is more white collar. They have, you know, the big jobs. Edmonton is more blue collar, and they support the energy industry. But at the end of the day, it's not that much different. Uh, people are right. people. Albertans get a raw deal, I think. People have this cartoonish idea that Albertans are a bunch of dirty, grubbing, oil patch, loving, you know, unsophisticated. And that's not true. Albertans are hardworking, friendly, can-do people. And I think they feel like the rest of Canada doesn't understand them. Sure, we produce the energy that you use every day, and then you crap on us for producing energy for being a dirty province. So, um, yeah, is it getting more divisive? Sure. It, it was shocking to me to have friends of mine say, oh, my God, I voted NDT for the first time ever. Um, so, yeah, uh, but I think that's just an evolution. This is Alberta Heart. becoming a little bit more like the rest of Canada. We're talking about the all but lost art of agreeing to disagree, especially politically. We want to have you part of the conversation. If you'd like to chime in, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on the cell. Uh, hands free, please. Uh, Linda Steele, are you ready to take some calls for the first time in two years? 
Uh, totally, totally. I feel like I'm right back there in the studio, Jody. This is a weird full circle moment, and I'm looking forward to talking to people who are the CKNW listeners who I uh, had the pleasure of talking to for years. I love it. 604-280-9898. The number's the same. Star 9898 on your cell. Terry in New Westminster, welcome. Yeah, I'd like to uh, say hello to Linda Steele. Big fan of Linda Steele's that I am of, of yours. Thanks, Terry. Love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm i from B.C., but I did live in Edmonton in the late 1970s, and I really liked the city, actually. People were very friendly. Yeah. A lot friendlier, I find, than Vancouver, even though I was born here, but uh, that's my take on it. Um, I left Edmonton and came back here because it snowed in August one day. <laughs> but what I find, and my dad was in the States, so what I find about Alberta is when I lived there, and probably even more so now, there's a streak of individualism which really reminds me of what's going on in the States. Americans are very individual, you know, the individualism with a lot of Americans. They feel they have, you know, a lot of rights, and they, you know, are very assertive about it, which in some ways is a good thing, but, you know, they get a bit carried away with it. And Alberta kind of reminded me of living in the States a lot. Hmm. See, now that's very interesting. I think Albertans don't like being told what to do, and they like small government. And I'm not thrilled about this Take Back Alberta party that I believe won some seats uh, they yeah. were formed in 2022, kind of leaning far right, tried to oust Jason Kenney. So, yeah, that's alarming to me. But there always has been that sort of fringe, almost PPC element in BC, or uh, Alberta, rather, and BC for that matter. Yeah, it's, we're not immune for sure. Thanks, Terry. Let's go to Keith in Nanus Bay. Welcome, Keith. Thanks. Yeah, just a point, uh, Linda, you were talking about the fact that um, Alberta is, quote, unquote, growing up. And becoming, uh, you know, like much of the rest of Canada. Um, just for some context, I grew up in, in BC, 58 years old, spent my entire life here. Uh, I voted NDP more than any other party uh, throughout the course of history. But one of the yeah. things that um, one must notice is that if you're talking about the rest of Canada, although the, the conversations are, are, you know, mature and, and there's debate happening out there, politically, every province with the exception of Newfoundland and BC has got a rate-leaning party. Most of, the, most of them are progressive conservatives, Saskatchewan party and the CAQ. So... I wouldn't necessarily that uh, what you're seeing in Alberta is is an anomaly. If anything, um, the rest of Canada has recognized that, uh, you know, continually going to left-leaning parties isn't necessarily the answer for them. No, and fair enough, Keith, but what I meant was that for the first time really in the last decade or so that Alberta has started to embrace and look at leaders and ideas uh, you know, from different political stripes. And that was not what it was like when I lived there. It was full-on conservative pretty much all the way. And so uh, Alberta is just being more like other provinces where there is a debate and there are parties fighting with each other. You know what? This has gone by way too fast. Thank you, Keith, for your call. Thank you. Sorry we couldn't get to more callers hanging on the line. Linda Steele, I will meet you on Thursday night for our little program there. to continue. See you there. check. <laughs> Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. Lots going on with regard to Surrey Memorial Hospital. We're just awaiting Health Minister Adrian Dix to call us and uh, have the conversation live with all of the developments we've seen. If I can give you sort of the backstory here, um, you heard last week where ER physicians were putting up posters in the emergency room saying, hey, be prepared to wait. Uh, you know, the, the stress on the system is real. Uh, fast forward and up to 36 
physicians have added their names to what is now grown to a list of 60. Uh, obstetrics and gynecology, ER doctors, all speaking out about the crisis situation at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Uh, the reports uh, of countless close calls and, and also the tragic death of a newborn. Um, here is the BC Chief Coroner, Lisa LaPointe, on with Mike Smith earlier today. Have a listen. Every child of a death in this province has to be reported to my office. So that death uh, will have been reported to my office, and we will be investigating. And we certainly will uh, speak to the parents. We will speak to the attending physician. We will gather the medical records, um, and we will try to establish the cause of death. It is oftentimes more complicated um, than a clip uh, on, the, on the radio can, can yes. provide in terms of context, but absolutely we will be investigating that death, and that, was, that is within our jurisdiction to investigate. Surrey Hospitals Foundation um, President and CEO Jane Adams put out a release saying the Surrey Hospitals Foundation convened the Health Summit this morning with the support of the city of Surrey and participation from healthcare leaders, including Fraser Health, UBC and SFU, clinical staff representing a cross-section of medical specialties, uh, first responders and local community leaders to try and come to a solution to help this ecosystem strategize on solutions and find consensus on key priorities to advance. There will be a full report on the summit that was held this morning, but I want to bring in BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Thank you so much for joining us, Minister. Good to speak with you. Hey, good afternoon. There are a lot of really nervous people all over. I mean, the healthcare uh, stress is real across the country and really around the world. But Surrey Memorial Hospital right now seems like ground zero when you have upwards of 60 plus physicians stepping up, open letters, talking about a crisis situation. Can tell our listener where you see us right now and where we're going? Well, what I've been saying for months, and uh, it's important to, to remember this, is we had a press conference in January, said there are more people in hospital than had ever been in hospital before in B.C., That was during respiratory illness season. And right now, for this time of year, I would say there are about 300 more people in hospital than there typically are. And I mean during the COVID years in hospital. So this is a period of high demand in our hospitals. And they are doing some of the most exceptional work you could imagine in emergency rooms under really significant stress. And the reason it's particular stress is it's really been continuous now for three years. So as I report out, Every week, I'm saying this is hundreds more than we usually have. And that means we have to support our acute care hospitals as we address all the other issues in healthcare. Surrey Memorial Hospital is at the center of the fastest growing region in BC. It's the only hospital in Surrey. We're going to change that. But it's the only hospital in Surrey now. There is always significant demand on that hospital because it does very high level work. And it deals with just a very large population. And you see that right now. For example, there are 625 beds at Surrey Memorial Hospital, which makes it the second biggest hospital in BC after Vancouver General Hospital. There are about 744 base and surge beds. And yesterday, there are about 660 people in that hospital, right? Admitted patients. In addition to that, significant demand in the emergency room. So, Absolutely. What the doctors and others are reflecting is the work they're doing to address that very significant demand. And it's work they're doing the excessive demand. It's not a special period. It's not flu season. It's not something like that. But it's after a bit of really three years of pressure. 
And so we're doing lots of work, as we did with family doctors last year, with doctors uh, in at Surrey Memorial Hospital, but also nurses and health sciences professionals and healthcare workers to help them address this issue because there's some fundamental questions that we need to address. We've poured resources right. into Surrey, uh, more so than any place, because Surrey was the most underserved area in BC when I became Minister of Health. So when it comes to right now in the immediate, when you're hearing that there are countless close calls, we've seen the tragic death of a newborn that's now going to be investigated by our BC chief, chief coroner of BC on the Mike Smith show was explaining that. I'm not sure if you heard that clip when you were joining us there, but we're talking about critically inadequate resources and compromising patient safety urgently today, right now. Where does the responsibility fall for this? I was talking to Richard Zussman earlier. He had mentioned that there are people calling for you to step down. That's not going to happen. You've been guiding, as to, to quote Richard, you've been guiding this province through a pandemic. You know, How are you looking at communicating with Fraser Health, communicating with the physicians at Surrey Memorial Hospital, having this summit with the the Surrey Hospital Foundation and trying to come together. What is going to be, do you think, the catalyst here? What is going to protect the people who are are compromised, their safety is compromised today? Well, first of all, the case of the child who passed away, that's from 2020. It was one that's significantly investigated and indeed changes were made because we need to learn from every case like that. So that comes yes. from 2020. And oh, uh, the, the chief coroner is uh, welcome, of course, uh, and has an independent mandate to look at whatever uh, the chief coroner wishes to look at. So all of that is, is fair and, and should happen. Can't speak a yep. lot about that case. That's, that's about patient privacy. We have in the last year um, signed a new agreement with family doctors and one of the most successful agreements we've seen. 3,125 doctors have joined. 500 who didn't practice family practice last year. For sure. Did, Honestly, Mr. Dix, I don't want to cut you off, but I get it. I get that. And, and, but and right with, here and now and, and today, with, though. And with nurses to do the same thing, because it's not just doctors, it's nurses as well. 100%. Very significant agreement. And so with respect to Surrey, we've been taking action the press conference I had in January was about the urgent actions we took then. We continue to take actions to support them. We're at the table with hospitalists at the bargaining table with hospitalists across Fraser Health. We've had offers on the table. We're working with them to see not just immediate solutions, but midterm solutions. Same with emergency room doctors. The way you engage and solve problems is to sit down and solve them. And that's what we've been doing for some time. And that's what we're doing now. I 100% all of the things that you said are true. I guess my question is more specific than that. If I can get to the to the bullseye on this dartboard is what are you being asked most urgently for today? Well, I think we have to address at Surrey Memorial Hospital, I think we got to address the issue of patient flow, meaning what happens when a, a, a patient is admitted to the hospital. Will they have sufficient care on the wards and can you move them out of the emergency room into the wards and get high quality care? That's why we have to work with hospitalists and internal medicine specialists and surgeons in different cases to make sure that people get the care we need. That's one step. We also have to address all the concern raised because these are our teams. When people talk about Fraser Health, Fraser Health are the doctors and nurses and health sciences professionals, healthcare workers that work in Fraser Health. So we've got to engage with them on the issues that they're raising. And uh, we've been doing that. We're going to continue to do that. Some of those are what you call bargaining table discussions. Others are how do we improve services so that people have the supports they need to provide the care that they need to everyone. Just say, though, as well, 
And Fraser Health delivered more surgeries, more diagnostic tests, more primary care visits last week than they've ever done before. And that's a tribute to all our healthcare workers and teams. No doubt about that. We did mention that off the top of the show. Again, Richard Zussman was delivering that. Like the, the services that are there. But we also spoke to the fact that the, the shortage in general practitioners, people struggling to find a primary physician and, and trying to fix those, land them sitting in an emergency room to fill a prescription, which is is weighing down our system in ways that are, are untenable in that regard. But also a reminder, if you have an emergency Call 911 if you have an emergency and you need to get to an emergency room, go, because you will get the treatment that is urgently required. It's the people that are sitting waiting so long um, and, the, and that we can now see the wait times online. That is, that is a new fix to some degree. Yeah, and, and just to, if you look at that online, you'll see two numbers. One, how long it would typically take you to, to see a doctor, because yeah. if you're, you come in with, say, a serious cardiac incident or whatever, you're going to be seen right away. But if you yes. go in, that's how long, and then how long the whole stay will take you, which is important for people. Sometimes people get dropped off and picked up. It's important for them to know. So that's all of that is important information for them to know. But uh, when doctors and nurses raise issues uh, with me, we respond to that because yeah. they're dealing with patients on the ground, and that's what we're doing in this case. Thank you so much, BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. You always make yourself available to us. We appreciate that. Hey, take care. Anytime. See you soon.